Welcome to another episode of Clot Conversations from Thrombosis Canada. I'm David Airdrie, Executive Director, and we're here to provide you with updates on diagnosis and management of thrombosis, featuring interviews with authors of recent research publications and highlights of education programs. Today's episode is our fourth from the ISTH 2022 meeting in London for Wednesday, July 13th. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We'll have our guests introduce themselves as they discuss their highlights. Okay, so I'm Jamil Abdul-Raymond. I'm with Thrombosis Toronto General Hospital uh, in Canada. And we're here with Dr. Rita Selby, who's Medical Director of Coagulation at UHN and Sunnybrook in uh, Toronto. Um, so Dr. Selby, tell us about what you, uh, which, uh, which presentations you thought were interesting. Uh, thanks a lot, Jamil. Um, there were a lot of presentations that were interesting, um, but since I'm primarily lab-focused, I sort of tend to zero in on... Um, anything to do with DOAC levels um, because we really need to advance the field in that um, space. So one of the oral communications I heard on Tuesday, July 12th in the session entitled Advances in the Measurement and Reversal of Anticoagulants was um, from France, um, presented by Virginie Cigarette. And um, what this group did was in nearly 500 patients who were on a DOAC, either apixaban or rivaroxaban, equal numbers, they actually developed a correlation between the DOAC level and a low molecular weight heparin antitenny level, such that you could use a low molecular weight heparin antitenny assay to predict what the DOAC level would be. And um, since this was a really large study, and since the prediction is quite accurate at low levels of DOAC concentrations, this actually has potentially practice-changing implications because many, many more centers have availability for low weight heparin and heparin antitenny assays rather than specific DOAC antitenny assays. So if this nomogram could be used across different centers that have heparin antitenny assay availability, it could greatly enhance our ability to provide DOAC-specific levels. And that's why I thought it was so fascinating. I'd encourage people to check out the abstract and the study in detail um, and uh, see how laboratories can use it in their uh, ability to provide DOAC-specific levels to their um, clinicians and patients. Great, thank you. So what are the uh, next steps? Is more studies needed in this area, or when can we officially use heparin levels to for uh, DOAC assessments? I think it's always been known that apixaban in particular has a good correlation when read off a lomoquate heparin curve. We've known that since 2010-2011 when there was initial data. I think this study was very important to me because they had nearly 600 samples, and it's very difficult to get that kind of, um, you know, that sample size. I think the way we can operationalize this is that larger laboratories can actually help smaller laboratories to develop derivation validation algorithms um, and um, uh, set up lomoquate heparin heparin assays and thereby expand um, access uh, to... But I think it would be important for the local laboratory to develop this um, algorithm or nomogram locally 
and help partner community sites to do the same. And that's that's the way I see it sort of in the future. Great. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. It's great speaking with you. Thanks so much for asking me. So we're here with Dr. Jim Duquettis from St. Joseph McMaster in Hamilton. Uh, he presented some of the findings from the pilot of PAUSE 2, uh, and he's also going to talk to us about some of the sessions uh, from the uh, program today. Thank you very much, Jamil. What I'll try to do is provide some takeaway points from this session entitled Contemporary Issues in Oral Anticoagulant Therapy. So there were four presentations. The first one was looking at off-label use of DOAX and what their effect was on clinical outcomes. So by off-label use, it happens a lot in clinical practice when we take a patient who is receiving a DOAC, let's say they're on a Pixaban and the dose typically is 5 milligrams twice a day, but we put them down to 2.5 milligrams twice a day, even though there isn't a good indication, and this is called an off-label uh, dose for, uh, uh, in this case, uh, the Pixaban. And this was looked at for patients who were taking Apixaban and Rivaroxaban, as well as the Bigatran, looking at off-label dose reduction. Does it affect clinical outcomes? The bottom line was that it didn't seem to affect uh, patients' uh, safety from the standpoint of bleeding. It didn't seem to affect uh, risk for stroke. But surprisingly, uh, patients who had a uh, off-label dose reduction had a reduction in their overall mortality. So this was a bit unexpected, and the investigators weren't sure how to uh, interpret this, um, uh, and there were the potential for confounders. But I think the overall message is that if you do dose-reduce, do it based on the clinical criteria. Uh, don't do it based on just sort of clinical gestalt. Um, although if that does happen, this study did not seem to affect uh, patients' risk for stroke or bleeding. The second study was also a database uh, linked study. Uh, this was done in the state of Michigan, and it looked at what the effect of adding aspirin was to uh, a DOAC or adding aspirin to warfarin. So it was a large, you know, several thousand patient uh, population-based study, and it looked at patients who were on warfarin and aspirin, who were on rivaroxaban uh, and aspirin, and who were on apixaban and aspirin. It didn't really talk much about why, but more what happens in terms of clinical outcomes when you do that. And this is important because a lot of times in everyday practice, patients are on a DOAC or on warfarin, and they really don't need to be on aspirin as well. But sometimes docs will put them on it, thinking that it may reduce their risk for stroke, and they may not be cognizant of the effect that it has on bleeding. So what did this study show? It basically confirm that if you add aspirin to one of these anticoagulants, you're going to increase uh, the risk for bleeding and that this risk differs uh, according to whether the patient is on a Pixaban, which appears to be the lower risk group as compared to patients who are on uh, Rivaroxaban or who are on uh, Warfarin. 
So overall, the study showed that there appeared to be a differential effect, at least on bleeding, whether you're on apixaban or rivaroxaban, with apixaban being a, associated with a lower bleeding risk than uh, rivaroxaban uh, and warfarin. And of course, these are not randomized comparisons of uh, had warfarin versus, sorry, rivaroxaban versus apixaban in patients who take aspirin. But there are all other observational data that suggest, you know, maybe apixaban is a bit safer than uh, rivaroxaban for the outcome of uh, major bleeding. The third study was actually a prospective cohort study in DOAC users who were very elderly, defined by age greater or equal to 80 years. And its aim was to look at what happens to DOAC levels in these very elderly patients on a DOAC, and mainly it was patients on apixaban and rivaroxaban. And DOAC levels were measured over about a 20-day uh, period in these patients, and there were peak levels, there were trough levels, and there were kind of in-between levels. So what the investigators did was they tried to determine uh, a time uh, to uh, test response. So in other words, what happened with peak levels, what happened to, to trough levels, and what the investigators found is that there's a lot of variability uh, in measuring, let's say, peak levels, measuring trough levels, irrespective of patients being on a on rivaroxaban or apixaban. So, what the message here is that I think it reinforces that we're not going to be measuring DOAC levels routinely uh, in patients, even if they are considered high risk, like the very elderly, which are high risk for stroke and bleeding because you're going to get a lot of variability from one patient to the other, which means what do these values mean clinically? We're not sure. So don't do the DOAC levels uh, routinely as a way to monitor uh, DOAC treatment in the very elderly. The final study was a very small randomized control trial called, called the PAUSE-2 pilot trial, and its aim was to compare the management of patients who were taking a DOAC and needed a high bleed risk surgery or any kind of neuraxial uh, anesthesia, comparing the approaches adapted from the PAUSE trial and adapted from the uh, American and European societies of regional anesthesia. And this was a pilot trial of about 105 patients. And the main outcome was with these two perioperative DOAC management approaches, what happens to the DOAC levels just before surgery? Is there a difference, if, for example, with uh, patients who are uh, adapting the pause management, they would typically stop their DOAC two days before a uh, major surgery. So if their surgery was on a Monday morning, they would not take the DOAC for the week for the weekend. Whereas if they're adapting uh, the ASRA American Society of Regional Anesthesia approach, they would stop the DOAC. Their last dose could be on the Thursday or even on the Wednesday before the surgery. So does, do these two approaches make a difference uh, in terms of the residual anticoagulant effect at the time of surgery? And is one approach inferring whether one approach may be safer or not? 
The main results show that both approaches are actually quite similar in that the residual DOAC levels were pretty well the same in patients who adapted the pause management approach and those who adopted the ASRA management approach. The mean levels were expressed in nanograms per ml uh, or as an exp- reflecting anti-factor 10A units for patients on apixaban or rivaroxaban, and these were in the low 20s. So what does that mean clinically? Well, we kind of think uh, a safe level for any surgery or procedure or lytic therapy is a value less than 30. And about 95 to 97% of patients, whether they were managed by pause management or ASRA management, had levels less than 30 nanograms per ml. This is a small study that makes a you know a bit of a step forward, if you will, in trying to provide harmonization toward perioperative DOAC management. And I think it tells us that the two approaches of PAWS and ASRA are more similar than they are dissimilar. Uh, PAWS management, however, may be considered a bit easier to apply to everyday clinical practice. So I think these were interesting studies, a lot of hypothesis generation, uh, but certainly a lot of practical applications as well. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoyed the PAUSE 2 study because I find it's a common situation where we'll give recommendations for anticoagulation and then maybe anesthesia might feel a bit different because the ASRA guidelines. So I find that study was very helpful. Uh, one quick question. Um, in patients who have perhaps once daily drug like rivaroxaban or redoxaban, we often think in terms of days, day minus one, day minus two, day minus three. If they're taking their drug at nighttime rather than the morning, would this adjust anything or you'd still stick to the day minus one, day minus two, day minus three? Yeah, that's a very good question. And with the ASRA management, they actually anchor their interval of interruption based on hours. Um, So, you know, between 65 and 75 hours, which sometimes may be hard to operationalize for the reason that you say, Jamil, because, you know, patients take their drug at different times during the day. They don't know exactly when their surgery is. And the pause management doesn't really consider that. You know, if you're on it, if you take it in the morning or if you take it at supper time, you're still off of it for two days before major surgery. And um, what we've shown from previous data is that it doesn't really make a big difference if there's an eight-hour, you know, difference in the, the time of the last DOAC dose. Uh, but above all, the, the emphasis is to try and provide a simple management approach that clinicians and, and patients can easily adhere to. And we think it's a bit easier to do that with a pause management than perhaps the ASRA management. Perfect. Great. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Clock Conversations from Thrombosis Canada. We welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions on the podcast. If you have any recommendations for future podcasts, please send them to us at thrombosiscanada.ca. And please subscribe so that you are notified about the release of new episodes. And don't forget to check our website for educational programs, clinical tools, and guides. Also, please consider donating to Thrombosis Canada to support our ongoing efforts to reduce morbidity and mortality due to thrombosis. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Jim Duquettis and Dr. Rita Selby today. And I want to thank my co-host, uh, Jamil Abdurrahman, for all the work he's done this week uh, in bringing you these interviews from the ISTH. Music.